ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 13th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Palestinian health officials say dozens of people have been killed during Israeli raids to rescue two hostages during a military operation in Rafah on the Gaza Strip, and we'll hear more about that raid shortly. But the nation's coming under immense pressure to abandon a ground offensive on the city. The White House says Israel has an obligation to provide safety for innocent Palestinians during any movement on Rafah. About one and a half million people are sheltering there. The United Nations says the potential for civilian casualties in such an operation would be terrifying. Here's Middle East correspondent Tom Joyner. Her face stained and pale. The little girl lies on a hospital bed, eyes red from crying. Around her are bloodied medical instruments and red-spattered walls. Holding back sobs, she tells of how she and her family had been sheltering in a tent in Rafa when her father called out, warning of incoming planes. Those were his final words, an Israeli bomb killing him in an instant. At least one and a half million Gazans have come to Rafa since October, heeding Israeli orders to evacuate other parts of the Strip. There, disease is rife. Families sleep in tents and ration animal feed to survive. As Israeli forces close in, there's nowhere else to run, and Palestinians fear a terrible situation is about to become even worse. Terror. Terror. So much terror. Something you've never seen. Not in Hollywood, not in Libya, not in Syria did something like this happen. They wiped out mosques and people. You kept saying, go to Rafa, go to Rafa, and so people came here. Then you target them? The morning after a sleepless night, Ibrahim Hasuna joins a crowd gathered to farewell the dead. Why did you kill my family while I was sleeping? They're children. I couldn't even recognise their remains. Earlier, Israel said it had rescued two hostages held captive in Rafah and had used airstrikes to provide cover for its mission. The country claims it does what it can to minimise civilian harm. But in Gaza, every parent knows any night could be their child's turn to die. In Rafah, where residents and refugees are exhausted, starved and terrified, a woman clutches her lifeless baby in her arms. They are criminals. What did he do, this little one? What did he do? This is Tom Joyner reporting for AM. Israel rescued two Israeli hostages during the heavy bombardment of Gaza. Hamas kidnapped more than 240 hostages during its October the 7th raid on Israel. About 130 have been freed since, many during a hostage prisoner of swap deal with Hamas. But there are still about 100 kidnapped people on the Strip. Nicole Johnston's speaking here with Daniel Sheck. He's the head of diplomacy at the Forum of Families and Hostages and Missing Persons about the two freed hostages. Well, these are two gentlemen who uh, had other family members uh, hostage uh, earlier, but the women and the young children were released. They uh, stayed behind. They are both elderly people. One is 60, one is in his 70s. And they have been there for 128 days. What do we know about how they're doing now and where are they? 
They are in a special hospital unit uh, at Israel's largest uh, medical center, the Sheba Medical Center outside of Tel Aviv, a unit that has been uh, specially set up for receiving uh, freed hostages. There were many children and women who were received there two months ago when the large number of hostages, uh, 110, were released and they're on observation. According to press reports, they're doing okay, all things considered. Has the Israeli military released any information about how this rescue took place? Well, yes, there is some uh, information. It was a an operation that was uh, planned for quite a long time. They were just waiting for the right moment. There were ground forces, but there was uh, a lot of military activity outside of that uh, specific area in order to create some kind of distraction and to set the stage for a pinpoint operation uh, on the second floor of a building in Rafa. Once these uh, two hostages were safely extracted, There was uh, a pretty large-scale Air Force activity around there in order to enable the forces to retreat safely. Only three hostages have been rescued since this war started. Do you regard that as a poor outcome? What I do think is that despite the exhilaration of this uh, really amazing heroic uh, operation, It is clear to us at the Forum of uh, Families of Hostages that the real path for large-scale liberation of hostages is still through a negotiated uh, agreement. That's Daniel Sheck from the Forum of Families of Hostages and Missing Persons, and he was speaking with Nicole Johnston there. Since the October the 7th attack on Israel, hundreds of Jewish writers and academics in Australia have had their private information publicly released for malicious reasons. In the online world, that's known as doxing. And in response, the federal government's fast-tracking new laws to criminalise the behaviour. With more, here's Tom Lowry. Doxing isn't a new phenomenon, and it's had a bit of attention in the news in recent years. Doxing, which comes from the word documents, is a term for releasing personal information about a target. It's sharing someone's information online without their consent. There's essentially one goal of doxing, guys. It's to get people to lose their feeling of privacy. Now the federal government is concerned enough it wants to make the practice illegal. Here's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, speaking to 2GB late yesterday. I've asked the Attorney General to bring forward legislation in response to the Privacy Act review, including laws that deal with uh, so-called doxing, which is basically the malicious publication of private information online. Some Jewish lobby groups have been pushing the government to act after details of a private WhatsApp group made up of hundreds of Jewish people working in creative industries were recently made public. Julian Lisa is a Liberal MP and a member of the Jewish community, and he spoke to RN Drive. This doxing was designed to threaten and silence them. It was a, it was an attempt to intimidate people. It's, it's about giving internet trolls the tools to ratchet up the intimidation. It allows them to have access to information that has no place in the public space. The new changes will see malicious doxing made a criminal offence. The new laws will be wrapped into broader changes to privacy laws, which were flagged late last year, and will also include stronger laws against hate speech. There's little detail immediately available about how the new laws will work, but the government wants to bring legislation to the parliament as soon as possible. I kind of like the idea, but 
practically like so many things in the online environment, probably won't work. Nigel Fair is a professor of cybersecurity at Monash University. He says finding the people responsible for doxing and holding them accountable could be a challenge. It's pretty easy to be uh, have a degree of anonymity online. It's pretty easy to set up social media profiles to share this information and, and use, you know, uh, jurisdictions far from where you live to use devices that you don't normally do and basically, you know, obstruct to who you are. So actually trying to find who the people are that have released the information is super difficult. And he says the social media platforms themselves can be a good first point of contact for those who find their information published online. The best that people have got really is if they see it happening is to go to the individual platforms um, where their information might be and, and make formal requests for them to remove the posts. Monash University Professor Nigel Fair ending Tom Lowry's report. We'll get an idea today of how the federal government intends resetting policies dealing with Indigenous disadvantage following last year's failed voice-to-parliament referendum. The government is unveiling a new jobs program for remote Australia aimed at creating 3,000 positions during the next three years. It's being revealed ahead of the latest Closing the Gap report, which will be tabled later today, which is tracking progress on closing the gaps between First Nations people and other Australians on things like life expectancy, health, housing and education. Jacqueline Breen reports. A referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament was the headline commitment Labor took to the last election, but there were other policy changes promised too. One of them a complete overhaul of the former government's controversial Remote Work for the Dole Scheme, or CDP. Linda Burney is the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians. The major announcement today is 3,000 jobs for the new Remote Jobs Programme. It is a replacement for the very failed CDP. The Remote Work for the Dole Scheme and its financial penalties for non-compliance were scrapped by the coalition before the last election. It was criticised as racially discriminatory, punitive and for failing to create any remote employment opportunities. Under the new scheme, the minister says the government will fund 3,000 jobs in local and community organisations using $707 million over the next three years. Every time I go to a remote community, this is the top order issue, employment, uh, and, and these 3,000 new jobs will be a shining example of self-determination and how communities can actually uh, develop their own economies. People will be, will be paid uh, for 15 hours work a week. They'll be paid equivalent to the minimum wage. And the most important thing is that they are proper jobs. Uh, there will be superannuation, annual leave, the same conditions as, um, as our other jobs. And they are going to be really innovative. I want to see jobs in the care economy. I want to see jobs in kindergartens. I want to see jobs that communities need, not just activities. Real wages and a remote jobs fund is part of what Indigenous organisations have been calling for. The Northern Territory's peak body proposed a similar scheme, but with a goal to create 10,500 jobs. There are currently 40,000 remote community residents without work. But John Patterson, the head of the Northern Territory's Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance, says the announcement is a welcome start. The design is to help build a remote workforce and reduce the reliance on the fly-in, fly-out or drive-in, drive-out uh, current practice 
on uh, big economic uh, projects and all those sorts of things. If we can get a get some buy-in into those sorts of arrangements and those big projects, and this announcement will certainly uh, help get real jobs for our mob that have been asking for this for the last two decades. Labor says the program will start in the second half of this year. In the meantime, work on the design and implementation will take place in the coming months in partnership with Indigenous organisations. Jacqueline Breen there. It's a game of political chicken. Key crossbench MPs in federal parliament are threatening to block a key government housing initiative known as Help to Buy unless Labor winds back negative gearing tax concessions. The Greens say the current policy mix makes it easier for property investors to buy multiple properties rather than allowing first home buyers into the market. While the government says it has no plans to adjust negative gearing laws, what are the implications of a change? Rachel Mealy takes a look. To many Australians, negative gearing sounds more like something that happens in a car than in an investment strategy. So just what is it? Peter Chulip is the Chief Economist for the Centre for Independent Studies. When a landlord rents out a property, they will typically borrow to to finance that. And the rental income usually does not cover the interest expense. So they make a loss on the rental property and they can deduct that loss against other income for tax purposes. And that deduction is called negative gearing. In the 2020-21 financial year, about 1.1 million investors in Australia were negatively geared and together they earned a tax benefit of $2.7 billion. Peter Tulip thinks the impact of negative gearing on the Australian economy is overstated. We have a huge problem with housing affordability. Negative gearing does not solve that issue. The real problem there is zoning restrictions, planning and land use regulations. And so the hope is is that governments will stop paying attention to these irrelevant symbolic issues like negative gearing and they'll actually do something about the real problem, which is planning restrictions. But the Greens think a wind-back of negative gearing would open up the housing market and they're prepared to block the government's proposed help-to-buy housing program. The idea is backed by those who are working to address the housing shortage. May Azizi is the national spokesperson for the housing advocacy group called Everybody's Home. Negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts and tax handouts like these for investors are a symptom of how the government is choosing to approach this problem. They are pumping billions and billions of dollars into the private rental market and hoping that delivers affordable housing, but it's just failing. Instead, what they're doing is spending record amounts of money um, on making housing in Australia worse and more expensive. Federal Parliament's Register of Interests shows that a majority of MPs and senators own two or more properties. May Azizi says she hopes federal politicians can see the bigger picture. I've got no doubt that this change can happen and I've got no doubt that it actually will happen. The question is how much pain do Australians have to go through before politicians are finally prompted to do something about it. But pollster Cos Samaras says negative gearing isn't going anywhere, with polls showing that tampering with the policy would amount to political suicide. There is substantial support um, to keep the the, the current tax uh, settings in place amongst people who only own one home and that is a home that they have on a 
mortgage. So there's a there's an element of aspiration there as well, which I think both both political parties or all political parties need to actually uh, be very attentive to. But he says an attitude shift towards the policy will start to move through the Australian electorate in future years, as the number of Australians who own investment properties shrinks. Rachel Mealy then. The big supermarket giants are under unprecedented scrutiny with a federal parliamentary inquiry underway alongside another investigation by the competition watchdog, the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. But many shoppers admit they spend more cash than they plan to. Nick Grimm takes a look at the techniques retailers use to entice consumers to put more in their trolleys than they intend and what to do about it. OK, tap away when you're ready. As most supermarket shoppers know, the cost of a trolley of groceries keeps taking a bigger bite out of weekly budgets. It's, it's become a bit ridiculous, to be honest. Everything's gone up and wages stay the same, but everything else is just astronomical. This man has also found himself spending more than expected. Uh, yes, I actually do. <laughs> grapes. The little ones wanted grapes. They saw it, so I ended up buying grapes. <laughs> no no tantrums in the store. <laughs> Nearby, another customer is loading her groceries onto her bike, and there's a little more to carry home than she'd counted on. Can I ask you, do you ever fall into the trap of spending more at the supermarket than you'd intended to? Every day, every time, without fail. You go in for one item and you come out with a with a bucket full, so I'll try. How does it happen that way? I don't know. Um, I think going in there hungry is a really bad idea. When they do a little special um, half price, I go nuts and I'll buy, you know, 10 containers of shampoo when I need one. It's just, I guess it's human nature. But it's human nature that the big retailers devote plenty of time and energy into understanding, anticipating and exploiting. And so they position product accordingly. It's all very scientifically laid out. Nothing happens by chance. Brian Walker is from the retail consultancy Retail Doctor. He says the supermarkets will bait customers with lower-priced products, then reel them in with more expensive add-ons. Supermarkets are renowned for this by putting milk and what have you at the back end of a supermarket or the rear of a supermarket. They're compelling customers to walk past every other product and then, of course, encourage the interest and the impulse to buy. I was looking at cornflakes on the shelf. The home brand variant disappeared altogether. I mean, it just wasn't even in stock anymore. So the consumer had no choice but to either switch supermarkets or go up to the next cornflake item, which on the shelf was nearly double the price. Lecturer in marketing at the Australian National University, Dr Andrew Hughes, keeps a close eye on the supermarkets and believes consumers can sometimes beat them at their own game. If you notice how supermarkets do it usually so well, is the fresh produce is on the right-hand side as you walk into the supermarket. So you make a beeline for that. That's done out of consumer psychology because what you'll do then is go, okay, well, now I've got all the good stuff. I can justify spending some money on the bad stuff. My advice to people is reverse that trend a bit. Go off and get the bad stuff, so to speak, first. It'll make you more conscious that you're getting some bad stuff and you're less likely to spend money on it where the margins will be a lot higher and then do your first fresh produce last. And that way, it's better for your diet, but also better for your bank balance. And that's Dr Andrew Hughes, a marketing lecturer at the Australian National University. Nick Grimm reporting there. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
G'day, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Since the government broke an election promise and changed the Stage 3 tax cuts, the Coalition's been warning there could be many more broken promises to come. Specifically, it says the tax incentive, known as negative gearing, is the next thing on the chopping block. Today, economics editor at The Conversation, Peter Martin, on what it is and whether we really need it anymore. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.